Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. My name is Tom Dick. I'm a pastor here at Southland, and Pastor Chris and LaDon have been gone this last week, so I'm preaching this weekend. And uh, next week, I think Chris Pughatch is on, <clears throat> so that'll be really good. Pardon me for a minute. I haven't talked enough yet this morning, <laughs> apparently. I'm going to take a drink. Oh, now I'm going to... Oh, gross. Literally nothing worse than hearing people drink into a mic. <clears throat> it's disgusting. All right. You know, uh, sometimes it can be tricky to come in and do these in-between messages, you know, interrupt a message series like Revelation. Um, and so I've been praying about it for a number of weeks now, and every time I would pray, I would just get this one phrase that would come over in my mind over and over and over again, and it was this phrase, the beloved disciple, which was interesting to me because <clears throat> the beloved disciple is John, the Apostle John. And I've spent a lot of time in John's gospel lately and in First and Second and Third John, and so I thought, you know what, I think it'd be really interesting to do just a, a, a message on the life of John. Wow. I have great confidence that halfway through the message, that will totally be cleared up. <laughs> and I can see all you intercessors just praying for Pastor Tom. God, clear up his throat. It's so annoying. Clear up his throat. <clears> throat> Thank you for your prayers. Um, you know, Chris, he spends one, one Sunday preaching on one chapter of Revelation. That's as much as he can do. I, today, am going to cover five books of the Bible in one fell swoop. If I was preaching, we'd, all, we'd maybe only need to come to church half the time. <laughs> we'd get all the way through the Bible. And you know, I love biographies, and I'm well aware that not everybody is like me. Not everybody will love biographies as much as I do. But you know what? There's something true about the fact that when you understand the who of Scripture, you understand the what and the why much better. And so it's important to look at who actually wrote the books that we're reading. And I get it. Like, um, they're, they're written inspired by God. We know that. But there's a context to them anyways. So whether it's Moses or David... You know, there's a context, and their, their human voice comes through, even though they're writing under the inspiration of God. And so it's helpful to know. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's various ways that we can get to know the Apostle John. For example, he's spoken about in the Synoptic Gospels. Those are the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called Synoptics because they're, uh, basically, they have a lot of the same content. They're a synopsis of Jesus' life, and um, they even share material sometimes, and that's okay. Um, and then we can learn about John through Acts, because he was one of the leaders in the early church. There's also reliable traditions from early fathers, uh, or early church fathers and other ancient historians. And of course, we can read his writings and find out a lot about this man, the Apostle John. His portion of the scriptures of the New Testament were the Gospel, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters that he wrote, and then, of course, Revelation. And he is uh, in third place then. That puts him in third place for the, third, uh, for the 
he's third place for the most uh, material in the New Testament. He's after Paul, who wrote a lot of it, and Luke, who wrote the largest gospel. John's gospel, though, when we talk about that one, it's really interesting for a bunch of reasons. First of all, he doesn't ever mention himself by name. And depending on how skeptical you are, you know, some scholars will say, did he really write it or not? No, we know that he wrote it. Uh, There's lots of good evidence for that that I could share with you another time. But um, his gospel is the only one that claims right at the end, this is an eyewitness account. And the, the curious thing about his gospel is that it was written much later after the first three, and it is it has 90% of the, the stories in there, the material in there, is unique to John. Whereas the first three gospels share a lot of stories, John, he, he, he uh, puts in a whole bunch more information that we didn't have from the first three gospels. And that means it gives us a rounded version of Jesus. It gives us more insight into who he was, and that's really valuable. So who was this guy, John? Well, he was one of the first disciples to be called to follow Jesus. In fact, according to his gospel, he was uh, one of the first two to be called to follow Jesus. He was with, um, he, and, and in fact, he was in a different camp, so to speak, when Jesus called him, when he started to follow Jesus. He was with John the Baptist. He was one of uh, John the Baptist's disciples, and the story goes in, in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And immediately the apostle John and Andrew turned from John the Baptist and followed a new rabbi. And I don't know how that felt. I know how the, the, John's other disciples felt about that, John the Baptist, because in John chapter 3, they have a long discussion, you know. And then John says, who, is, who are we to care, you know, about who follows us? He says, he has this famous verse. He says, you know, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. So John the Baptist had the right attitude. He wasn't worried about sheep stealing. But John was one of these first, and actually, it's very funny because they literally did follow Jesus. It was akin to stalking, I would say. It says, they noticed Jesus, they turned and followed him, and then it says, when Jesus, Jesus noticed them, he said, what do you want? <laughs> Why are you following me? And they said, well, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, well, come and see, and it says that they were with him from that day on. Now, Andrew, one of those first two disciples, was the brother of Peter, and Andrew and Peter had a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee with their father. And James and John were also two brothers, John the Apostle, who also had a fishing business. And these four were in partnership together. So in the, in the, in the story where uh, Jesus uh, fills the nets to overflowing for Peter and Andrew, they call over James and John to help them get the fish out of the sea and into the boat. So they were often working together, and they would have known each other. And it's interesting, then, that these four would have been among the first six, for sure, that were called. And I just want to, I just want to pause here for a minute. There are some skeptics who will say that there's, a, there's, there's contradictions in the Gospels because different Gospels will have different disciples being called in different orders. But actually, when you read the, the Gospels clearly, we don't have all the stories, so there are places where Jesus met certain people for the first time, but he only called them to be his disciple much later. So there actually is no contradiction between, between the Gospels, and in John's Gospel, he's one of the first two that's called. And of course, uh, his, he and his brother James 
were uh, given the nickname by Jesus, the Sons of Thunder, right? And they lived up to their name. They lived up to their name because they were coming back from a mission strip one day and they were passing by a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village did not welcome them. And it was James and John who suggested, Rabbi, Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy the village? Jesus is like, no. (laughs) Calm down. You know, have a sit for a while. So, they, uh, they definitely earned their, their, uh, their name, and I always assumed that it came from their father. I, you know, I have this, um, this image in my mind of this big, burly fisherman who was a thunderous man, you know, who raised up these thunderous children, but I think they actually got it from their mother upon more careful reading of the, of the gospel, because it was their mother who came with them to speak to Jesus about the fact that she would like her sons to be seated next to him in the heavenly kingdom. Audacious claim. And James and John were right there with him, or with her, asking the same thing of Jesus. Well, that's interesting. They lived up to their names. And, and uh, their mother's name was Salome. And I always want to call her Salami, but her name is not Salami. It is Salome. And the fact that she even could approach Jesus and speak to him this way shows us that she must have been a close disciple of Jesus. She probably was one of his other disciples, not in the, uh, not in the twelve. Um, but she was also present at Jesus' crucifixion with Jesus' mother, Mary. And there's actually some very interesting evidence that if you look at the different Gospels and you put certain verses together, there's very good evidence that Salome was actually not just the mother of James and John, but she was the sister of Mary. So that would have made her Jesus' aunt, which maybe is why she could go to him and ask those audacious things. And it would also make James and John... Jesus' cousins, which is very interesting. Now, I want to pause here for a minute because um, the 12 disciples are a confusing lot. They're a confusing lot. So, for example, depending on who's writing the gospel, um, you'll have uh, two Jameses. Um, There's a man named Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel. There's a guy named Matthew, who's also called Levi. Simon was the brother of Andrew and sometimes went by just Simon and sometimes went by Peter because Jesus came, gave him that name. But in other places, he went by Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter, which means rock. So depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, you could be reading about Peter, Simon, Simon, Peter, or Cephas, and they're all the same person. And it gets very confusing because not only are there two Jameses, there are also, um, uh, there are also two Judases. And now the reason I say that is because the Jameses that we're talking about, one of them was the brother of John, the cousin of Jesus. He was James the Greater. And then there was also James the Lesser, which is not, not a cool nickname, really, when you think about it. You know, it's like, it's like we have, you know, three Tims on staff. There's Tim the Greater, the Medium, and the Lesser. Or two Rays, and, and you know, certainly Ray Yoder would be Ray the Lesser. <laughs> Ray Dirksen would be Ray the Greater, you know, makes sense. However, it gets confusing. It gets very confusing. And the, the reason this is important is because the other James, James the Lesser, was actually the brother of Jesus. He was also the brother of Jude, who was another disciple. And both James and Jude wrote epistles that we read about in the New Testament. So the, the, the epistle, the letter James, 
is written by James the Lesser, who was the brother of Jesus. It was not written by the James who was the brother of John, the cousin of Jesus. It's very important that you get this straight. And there's debates on this. And so I was confused, and it was, it was threatening to, to actually derail my prep this week. So in a, in a fit of intellectual angst, I emailed Eddie Dubon. And Eddie's brilliant. I don't know if you know this about him, but he is brilliant. He works with Church Renewal. And literally within eight minutes, I had about eight-page email in my inbox of study notes on who is actually Jesus' brother and who is his cousin. So I'm fairly confident in what I'm saying here. All this is to say that the, the John we're talking about is James the Greater's brother. Now, John's family was influential in Jerusalem. A lot of scholars believe that given his intimate knowledge of Jerusalem, they probably lived there. And we know that he was influential. He was known to the high priest Caiaphas. And that's, that was important because when Peter, when Jesus was arrested and Peter went to the high priest's house, it was John who got him access to the courtyard because he was known to the high priest. So John's family was very important in Jerusalem. Now, despite his obtuseness, somewhat stupid sometimes, John, together with his brother James and Peter, formed the inner three. And can you just imagine that? The sons of thunder and Peter were Jesus' closest, most trusted disciples. That gives us tremendous hope. It really does. And I mean that. The inner three were with Jesus at his uh, transfiguration. They were with Jesus when he uh, went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was, or healed her. It was John and Peter whom Jesus sent ahead of them to prepare the upper room for the Last Supper. And it was John who leaned affectionately on Jesus at the Last Supper. You see, they were, at the, in those days, they would sit, they would, they would recline at the table because the table was lower or even on the ground. And they would lean on each other around the table. And the person who leaned on Jesus was the closest to him. And it says that John put his head on Jesus' chest while they were eating, which is a, was a sign of affection. And they were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was to John, of whom Jesus said to his mother from the cross, Woman, behold your son. And now maybe it makes a little more sense now that we know that John was her nephew. Nonetheless, it, it was Jesus thinking of his mother in his worst time, wondering who was going to take care of her. And he looked at John and he saw her standing next to his mother, Mary, and he said, Mother, look, here's your son. He'll take care of you. John was the disciple who outran Peter on the way to the empty tomb. Now, I love the fact that only John's gospel mentions that. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that I'm going to write in my memoirs, being the youngest of four children, you know. I outran my brothers. <laughs> But you know, when he got there, he didn't go in first. He let Peter go in first, out of respect. But when Peter went in, he saw the, the bedclothes or the, the, the death linens lying there, and Jesus wasn't there any longer. The women had already come and reported this to them. And, and, uh, but he, it says that Peter turned and left. When John went in and he looked and he saw that, that not only were they laying there, but the, the, the linen that had been covering Jesus' head was folded, he knew immediately what had happened. By faith, he realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, as he said. 
And John was the first of the 12 disciples to fully apprehend what had happened here in the empty tomb. It's fascinating. In the first church, John became uh, a leader along with Peter, and he was with him often. He was with Peter when they healed the lame man at the temple gate called Beautiful, and he was also arrested with Peter and put into prison with him by the temple guard because they had, uh, they had led one of the, the, the officials' wives to Christ. And because of that, they were thrown in prison together. When the gospel was accepted by the Gentiles in Samaria and the apostles in Jerusalem were confused by this, they couldn't just send anybody to go investigate the matter. This was incredibly controversial. Up until then, it had only been Jews that were receiving the Holy Spirit. And now there was this strange story coming out of Samaria that Gentiles were beginning to receive the Holy Spirit. And so who did they send? Peter and John. And already we're beginning to see that this Peter and John, they weren't so much the sons of thunder anymore. He wasn't the son of thunder with his friend Peter, you know. They, they were not just uneducated fishermen anymore. They were trusted leaders within the church, trusted with an incredibly important mission. They're, they were already becoming theologically very sound in their thinking. Traditionally, it's been accepted that John, after leading in, the, in Jerusalem, left in around 67 AD with many of the other Christians of Jerusalem because there was persecution there, and he became the pastor in Ephesus. Uh, and he became a pastor to many churches. And then eventually uh, an emperor came, rose to power, who persecuted all the Christians in the entire empire, and John was sent to Ephesus. Now, he was already a very old man when he was sent to Ephesus, uh, not, pardon me, not to Ephesus, to Patmos, to an island in the Mediterranean Sea. He was sent there in exile. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, John died on Patmos, probably of natural causes. The other 11 disciples are believed to have been martyred for their faith in horrible ways. Some were sawn in half. Some were flayed alive with knives. Some were beheaded. Thomas is said to be martyred in India. Um, others were martyred in Egypt. And all around they went and they died for their faith. But not Peter, uh, not, I mean, not John. John died of old age, natural causes, they believe, although there's an early Latin tradition that suggests that they did try to martyr him. They tried to boil him alive in oil, and he wouldn't die. It's a remarkable thing. And this means that when Paul was, or John, pardon me, when John was writing from Patmos and from Ephesus, he was already an old man. See, when we read about John, we're always reading about young John. John, who was this uncouth, audacious, somewhat tempered, hostile disciple who Jesus was working with. That's who we read about. But when we read the words that John wrote, we're not reading the words of a young man. We're reading the words of an old man, an elder statesman who's recognized for his wisdom, for his uh, prophetic visions. I mean, this is the man who was swept up into heaven to, to see the visions of revelation by Jesus. And I, I, that's always interesting to me because I think that uh, John must have been a bit of a mystic. 
I think he became a little bit mystical in his old age. And I like that about John. I, I relate to that a little bit. If you consider even just how he writes his gospel, there's, there's, there's a sort of mysticism. There's a mystery to it, you know? Um, if you consider like how the others started their, their gospels, for example, Matthew. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience wanted to know about Jesus. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was, so he had to establish the genealogy of Jesus. He said, you know, this is, the his, this is how it starts. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, here's his whole family tree. This proves that he is who he said he was. He was writing to a religious Jewish audience. That's who Matthew was writing to. And then Mark. Mark was writing to Romans. They could have cared less about Jesus' genealogy. He doesn't even talk about Jesus' birth. He just leaves it out altogether. He doesn't talk about Bethlehem or Mary and Joseph. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. He starts in the prophecies about Jesus to establish that Jesus who he was, who he was who he said he was. And then you have Luke. And I think that you must read Luke not in your accent. You must read him in a different accent. So I shall read to you the way I imagine that Luke would have written his introduction. He said this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down them to us. It has also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the first to write you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Thank you, Dr. Luke. Does that not just sound like a doctor? You know, <laughs> somewhere between David Attenborough and John Cleese. That's how I imagine. No, he didn't speak English and he wasn't from Britain, but that's how I imagine him speaking that. And it's this long C.S. Lewis-esque, you know, introduction, right? That's Luke. And then you get to old mystic Pastor John. How does he start? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And everybody thinks, what are you getting at, John? He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness could not master it. Ooh, it's this poetry. It's this beautiful mystery. And I can just imagine, you know, the Jews who already had Matthew, they had Luke, they had the, the gospel of Mark, and it's so... It's so clear and academic. And then they get to John. And they say, well, he is old, <laughs> you know. But what's happened to John? And this is why I like him so much. You know, he's a little bit artistic. He's a little bit poetic. He will sweep you up into this great drama, cosmic drama. And then you know what he does? In typical grandfatherly fashion, he will lull you into a false sense of security and smack you in the face. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And you say, thanks. Thanks, Grandpa John. I'm a murderer who's going to hell because I hate my brother, you know. And that's how John was. He had this ability to sweep you in and then hit you with the truth. And this is the brilliance of how he communicated. And I love it. And you know, as I've thought about it this week, 
Really, even though he, he writes this way, he always found a way to take what was sort of this ethereal, mystical, mystery language and bring it right down to earth, make it concrete. And so I want to talk for the second half of this message about three themes that he, that he wrote about. And at, at first glance, they appear to be very strange, very strange. But then when you actually dig into them and just think about them a little bit, you go, he was talking about something incredibly concrete in incredibly beautiful ways. So let's get started. Those three themes are the Logos, the Light, and Love. We're going to talk first about the Logos. What is this thing of the Logos? Now, in Greek, you may know that there's different words for the word love. You have eros, agape, phileo, and horge. And each of those words are just translated into English as love, but they all mean very different things. Phileo is brotherly love. Horge is a fatherly or motherly affection. And in Greek, we also have the same problem with the word word. There are different Greek words that have all been translated as word in the New Testament, in the English New Testament. So, for example, you'll have what's called a rhema word. A rhema means utterance. It means that God is speaking directly to you. In Romans 10, verse 17, when it says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the message that is spoken, you know, the word of God, it's talking about a rhema word. It says that what that means is that no one can get saved unless God invites them. That's what it means. They need a rhema word. A prophecy is a rhema word, okay? Then you have the word graphy. Graphy is another word for word that refers to the written word. So if you ever read a, a phrase that says, for it is written, that's often, it means gra it's the graphy, okay? And then you have this other word for word, logos. And in John chapter 1, that's what we're reading about. It's the word logos in Greek. And it doesn't mean just a word. It means something more than that. There's a, there's a message hidden within that word. And of course, you'll notice that when you read the Gospels carefully, especially John's, that he doesn't just write the word word. He capitalizes the W on the word word which means that it's not just any word, and he doesn't always do that. Sometimes the word logos is capitalized. Sometimes the word logos is not capitalized. But when it is capitalized, it is speaking about a person, and we know that that person is a he, and we know that the word, capital W, took on flesh, and there's only one member of the Godhead, the Trinity, that took on flesh. It was Jesus. The Holy Spirit and God are both spirits. They didn't take on flesh. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that the word, capital W, or Logos, capital L, is Jesus. That's a name for Jesus. And we see this again in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, it says that the, the rider on the white horse, who is Jesus, wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word, the Logos, of God. Now, this word Logos is very important. The word logos in Greek is where we get the English word logic from. We get the English word logic from. And so you could actually read John chapter 1 like this. In the beginning was the logic. And the logic was with God and logic was God. You could actually read it that way because it says... In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So you could read logic into that sentence. Now, why is that important? It's important because 
of what logic is and what it's meant to do. Now, I know that this will not capture the hearts of everybody in this room, but I know that for certain people, to understand this is extremely important to understanding who Jesus actually is and how we get to know him. See, logic, when we speak of logic, what we're talking about is the, the rules of reason. It's called the laws of thought. There's three laws of thought that govern everything that is true, okay? And the three fundamentals of logic are this, the law of identity, something is exactly what it is. There's the law of non-contradiction, something can't be something other than what it is at the same time in the same sense. So you can't have a square triangle, that's contradictory, it's messing with words and definitions, okay? And then there's the law of rational inference, which was added somewhat later. And then the other one is the law of the excluded middle. That's the third one. Now, why are these rules important? If you've ever said to yourself, you've heard someone's story and you said, yeah, that's, that feels true. You have employed the rules of thought. So if anything is true, it has to have followed and obeyed the rules of logic. That's what logic does. It tells us what is true. Logic tells us that something is what it says it is, okay? So if you're watching the news and you go, I don't know about that logic, you're recognizing that you actually know the laws of reason without knowing what they're called. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus says that logic is important. How do we know that? Because he says, for example, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if he is the truth, that means there is a way to know whether he is a lie. And to know whether something is true, you need to use logic. So when you come to Jesus and you affirm in your heart, Jesus is who he says he is, you are actually following the laws of reason and logic to come to know Jesus. And the interesting thing about that is it doesn't stop there. In uh, John 8, verse 31 to 32, there's this famous verse. Everybody loves verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Oh, yes, truth sets us free. So what is the truth about, you know, Gender identity. Once you know that, the truth will set you free. But is that what it means? No, because there's a verse 31, which is extremely important. It says, if you continue in my word, which, by the way, is logos, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in other words, if you want to actually know the truth, you need to continue in the word or the logic of God. Does this make sense? It says, if you continue in my logic, you really are my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's a continuation. It's actually hard work. You actually have to think about what you believe. Otherwise, you can get derailed from your faith. Like I did when I was 29. You know, when I was 29, I had never even heard of the rules of logic. I had no idea what they were. I had no idea about apologetics or how to defend my faith. And suddenly this question came into my heart that I couldn't answer through my experience. It was an intellectual question, and it almost derailed my faith. And so I had to continue to work at my faith if I was going to continue in my faith at all. It's very important to understand that the truth doesn't just set you free at the onset. There is, an, there is maintenance to the truth. There's a maintenance to our relationship with Jesus. And John reiterates this. 
He reiterates this in 1 John 1 verse 2. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched. So he's talking about something that is physical. You can know it. That's what he's saying here. We've touched with our hands concerning the word, capital W, logos of life. He's saying, we touched Jesus. We observed Jesus, this logos. It was extremely reasonable what he did. That life was revealed to us, so even the logic had to be revealed. And we've seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He's reiterating what he said in John chapter 1. Now, in John chapter uh, 1 verse 10, he says, If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. His logic is not in us. You see, he's saying that there's something important about this idea of, of reason. And he says, it's not even reasonable to say that you don't have sin. Do you know that many Christians are saying today that if you become saved, you, you have no more sin after that, even if you do sin? That's fascinating to me because they're actually going in direct contradiction to the logic of God. Direct contradiction to it. <clears throat> so let me, uh, let me just summarize this. The way that we know anything is true at all is because of the laws of, of logic. What that means is that they are supremely meaningful. They make, they make the world around us supremely meaningful. And by the way, they were not invented. The rules of reason and the laws of logic were not invented. They always existed within God. You see, the laws of nature, those were invented. Those were created by God. So then when a miracle happens, God is breaking, so to speak, one of the laws of nature, okay? He's, he's saying, I created them, I can break them. Do you know that God will never break the laws of logic? You know why? Because God can't. Because it would mean that he was being untrue to who he is. He is logic. It's fascinating. I find it fascinating. And it's very important. It means that Jesus, who calls himself Logos, is supremely knowable. It means that when you apply laws of reason to him, you find that he is reasonable. It means also that if he is the only way, truth, and life, that if you apply those same rules to other gods or other religions or other worldviews, you will find that they are less reasonable than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means that we are the most reasonable people for following Jesus. And you see, it is completely legitimate to come to Jesus through intellectual means. It is completely legitimate. You know, I had a friend. When I came here in 2006 to Southland, he was in grade 10. We got to know each other quite quickly. I invited him to be a youth leader for me. He was a great kid. I really liked him. And so in fall, uh, when we started up our programs, I asked him to be a worship leader for me and a cell leader. So he agreed, and he was a very good guitar player. And so here he started. And then one day, I think it was probably October or something, after only three or four youth events, he came to me and he says, Tom, I can't lead worship anymore, and I don't think I can be a cell leader. I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, I just, I'm really wrestling. I, I just don't know if I believe in God anymore. I said, well, we have to sort that through. 
But I mean, I'm not worried about sorting it through as you serve. We can do that. And he goes, no, I really don't think I should be. He says, I'm really wrestling. And I, see, I, in my head, I actually knew that he had gotten this girlfriend and they were getting in trouble together. They were, they were doing more than they should have been doing. And I, uh, I said, is this because of what's happening there? And he said, well, yeah, but that's really beside the point. He says, I actually just don't know if I want to believe in God anymore, which makes sense because when you're in sin and you try to believe in God, it makes it very awkward, you know? And so he at least had the intellectual honesty to say, I can't do both. I'm not going to fake Christianity and live this way. He says, at least I'm going to choose one or the other, and it just so happens that I'm choosing this one. And he walked away from God. And when I say he walked away from God, I mean he walked away from God. And... Um, we tried. I tried to meet with him uh, every other week. I said, let's read some books together. We read The Case for Christ together. There was, there was nothing that can convince him intellectually to leave that relationship and return his heart to Jesus where he knew the truth was. And he did know it. And so for about three years, he fell off my radar. I, didn't, I, didn't, I hardly heard from him. I waved to him when I saw him in town and stuff like that. And I knew that uh, he and his girlfriend moved in together and that they got pregnant, they had a baby and all this stuff. I knew that he was into massive amounts of drugs and alcohol. I knew all of this, right? And his mom went, lived down the street from us and she'd often, you know, uh, talk to me and, and ask me to pray for him. And you know, it was interesting. She said, there, there are people who are saying that they've heard in prayer that he's going to come back to the Lord. And you know, when I had that feeling too, and it, sometimes when you get those feelings, you're like, well, I have to accept that on faith because I actually don't know if I believe it. This one, I believed to the very core of my being that he would eventually come back to faith. And uh, one day, it was around Christmas time, we were at our staff Christmas banquet, and I got a call from his mom, and she said, Tom, my son is collapsed on the floor in my living room. He can't get up. He's having such an emotional breakdown right now. And she says, the only thing he's asking for is Pastor Tom. You're the only person he's asking for right now. I said, well, I'm at a staff banquet right now, so I can't meet with him, but I will meet with him tomorrow in my office. And just so you know, I have permission to share this story. He actually gave me permission to share his name, but I will not use his name. So he came to my office the next day, and this kid, who is now a young adult, a dad, his face was gray, his clothes were too big for him. Like, he just, he just looked unkept, unhealthy, unhappy. He looked, he looked bad. And uh, I said, you know, what do you, what do you want? And uh, he said, Tom, I've screwed up my life. And he said, I, I need the, the counsel of wise men. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> Very nice of you. I said, well, okay, but you know what my answer is. And he said, Tom, I'm not ready to become a Christian again. I said, that's fine. And then he said something really funny. This is a little bit of an aside, but this was just funny to me. He said, and if I do, I'm never coming to church here. He did like that. He banged the desk and he said it very emphatically. And then I got just a little bit mad. Not mad at him, but mad at the devil. And, uh, and I said, why not? He said, because I could never come to a church that would spend $12.5 million on itself. That's right when we were fundraising for this auditorium. And I said, well, actually, it's 15. <laughs> and I said, that's fine. If you don't want to be in a church that spends 12 or $15 million on itself, that's fine but then I'm sending you a bill for this meeting. He said, what? That was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'd never said that before. It just woof, came to me. <laughs> and I said, well, look, somebody who is also giving that $15 million is also paying my salary so I can meet with you and help you. 
So if you don't want to have any part of the 15 million, I'm sending you a bill for this meeting. And by the way, all those breakfasts that we had, I didn't pay for them. They came out of my budget, which was tithe. Thank you. So maybe we can reimburse those people too. Oh, then he was quiet. So then we met together. He really wasn't ready to become a Christian yet. And we met together, and I, t- I had two weeks of Christmas holidays. And so over my Christmas holidays, I met with him maybe five times. The fifth time, it was around January 3rd. And uh, I came to his house because he was, he was softening. His heart was softening. I came, actually, it was his mom's house. We were sitting in the living room. There's just the two of us in the house. It was January, but I, remember, I actually distinctly remember how warm it was. It was, sun, it was sunny in the room, and we were sitting in these big, comfortable uh, chairs across from each other. And I said, what is keeping you from coming back to God? Thinking in my head it's going to be addictions or, you know, sinfulness or, you know, something like that. And he said, Tom, I have questions that I need answered. Okay, I can answer questions. I said, how many do you have? 22. He had written them down. I said, great. Let's start with one and let's move on. So I answered one. And then I had only actually asked him four or five times, what is your next question? And I had talked so much that I had answered all of them. And so I got to, I, I, I finished the thought, and I said, so what's your next question? He says, well, actually, like, you've answered them all. And I said, well, then what's left to do? And remember, he's an intellectually honest kid. He's intellectually honest. He said, I guess I have to give my life back to Jesus. And I said, well, you've been a Christian before, and you know how to pray, so I'm not leading you. You pray your own words to God. And we sat there, and I, 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 this is not a word of a lie. We sat in silence for five minutes till he could work up the, the courage to pray to the God he had walked away from. And it was an entire silence because in the background, softly playing in the kitchen was ACDC Highway to Hell. <laughs> That's not a lie. That's ingrained in my mind. Wasn't loud, just softly. It was the anthem of his conversion. And he gave his life to Christ. Five days later, his girlfriend gave her life to Christ. They got married within nine months. He's going to be a pastor. He's in ministry. And the way that God set him free was through his intellect. And you know what? I get it that... that at the end of the day, it's an experience with Jesus. There's a call, there's something there, there's a heart response, right? But you see, what, what, what the logic does, when we can answer those hard questions, what it does is it removes the bramble and the thorns from the path to God. It's very hard to fight through that intellectual bramble if you've got all these questions buzzing around in your head. Very difficult. So you've got to answer the questions and clear the path so that you can make your way towards God and a relationship with Him. And, that's, and it's completely legitimate. And if, you, and if you're going towards God and you've been carrying on that path for quite some time and now all of a sudden there's brambles overgrowing, you just need to pause, answer those questions and continue going on. But you see, the fact that Jesus calls himself the Logos, the logic, it says to us that he is supremely knowable. It says to us that there is no question that he cannot overcome. And that's a brilliant thing. So the Logos, the word, it's not this weird, ethereal, mystical thing. It's concrete. It's concrete. And then we have two more, and they're going to go quicker. We have the light. 
And, you know, light is this weird thing that, that poets write about, you know. And, and it can mean all these different things. And, you know, you have John writing in 1 John. He says, you know, he says, if you claim to know God and yet you walk in darkness, you are deceiving yourselves. You are a liar and you are lying to yourself. Now, what does he mean, walking in the light? Because that's a weird concept for us. How do you walk in the light? He said, well, this is what it means. The light is Jesus. We know that from John 8. In John 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He says, well, I am the light of the world. So if you're walking in the light, you're walking in a relationship with Jesus. That's all it means. And it says in John 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. So what he's saying is no one who denies the light can have the Father. He who confesses the light has the Father as well. They're, they're one and the same. They're one and the same. And if you want light, you must have the Son. You must have it. And again, this isn't strange. It's actually very practical if you just think about it for a second. Think about light and darkness for a minute. Now, let's say you're a parent and you have little kids, okay? If you walk around in the dark, you will eventually be brought to sin. You know how I know? Because you will step on Lego. <laughs> and when you step on Lego, you will cuss. And that is sin. But if you had turned on the light, you would see the Lego and you wouldn't step on it. See? That's how it works. That's it. You turn on the light, you see the sin, you don't step on it. That's how it works. Or if you're driving down the, you know, the, the death highway of 52. That is a scary road. I'm from the safe roads of Winnipeg and Highway 75. And then you come to 52, it's dangerous. It feels very dangerous. And there's wildlife on it. And at night, if you're driving, you flip on your brights. What do you see? Those two little glowing green dots in the, in the distance. And immediately, your whole reaction is to protect. Stop. There's, live, there, there's, a, there's livestock, heaven forbid. <laughs> if you're an elk farmer, there's livestock on the road. You have to stop or you'll hit that thing. It's danger. The light illuminates the danger. You see what I mean? It's very simple to understand. But you say, well, what does it mean to have the light of Jesus? You see, the light of Jesus is even called life was in him. And that light was the life of man. You see, if you want life, you need to come close to the light. But what does that even mean? What does it even mean? It's very simple. It means that the more you go grow closer to Jesus, the more light you have, the less you're going to sin or the more you're going to recognize the danger. That's what it means. So how do you get to know Jesus? You do the things that Jesus says are important. You spend time with him. You pray. You do listening prayer. You don't just talk to your commander. You listen from your commander. You go to church for teaching and worship. And then you know that the church is too big for you to have true fellowship and community, so you join a cell group. Unless you join a cell group, you're not actually experiencing the true light because you're not in close enough community, and the community is light. And then you maybe memorize some scripture because that illuminates different parts of your life. You do this. It's so simple, it's painful. You go, oh, my life feels so dark. Well, spend some time with Jesus. It won't. It's simple. And this is the thing. Now, now this is the dangerous part, though. I know that, how, how many, I just know that some of you, I won't even ask for raising hands, but, you know, we, we have this thought often. If I could just bring so-and-so to church, they would experience the love of God. Oh, that'd be brilliant. If I just brought so-and-so to church, they would experience the love of God. It would be undeniable. Yes, that may be true. 
But in experiencing the love of God, they might also experience the light of God. And that is not an easy thing because the light not only illuminates the external danger to our lives, you know, don't hang around with those people, they'll get you in trouble, don't read that book, it's, it's not appropriate, don't watch that movie, it'll drag you down, it'll put thoughts in your head. That, that's external danger. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you recognize external danger. But it also illuminates the internal danger. This is why John says that uh, in, in uh, chapter 3 of his gospel, that the people hate the light. And then you think, well, yeah, because it illuminates the sin in their lives. Not just the sin, but their sinful actions. Their deeds were evil. And then in the next breath, it says, but those who live next to the truth are not worried about the light because the light illuminates their actions as being from God. You know what the difference is between someone who gives credit to God for their life and someone who doesn't? It's pride. So when God's light shines in your heart and it illuminates pride, that's not a nice thing. It's a hard thing to come to terms with. But again, it's not mystical. It's just true. It's no wonder people don't want to do the things that God says will bring you closer to him. It's no wonder to me. It's hard. I don't want to sometimes. Because I know that the conviction will come. I know that. That's the light. And it's the power of the light. And that's why we say if we know God, we have to actually walk in the light. It is incompatible to say that you know God and walk in darkness. It's incompatible. And you have to seriously do work to ignore that. And that's why I like my friends so much. He said, I'm choosing darkness. At least I'm not going to try and walk in both. Powerful, that light. And then the last, last theme that, that John writes about is, is simple. It's love. You know, John basically wrote the book on God's love. Do you know that? Every, I was trying to think of all the verses I know, you know, that I've heard about love in the Bible. And do you know, with the exception of 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, that one that Paul writes, there's only 13 verses there. When you start to think about all the verses about love and God's love and how to love your neighbor, many, many, many of them were penned by an elder statesman who knew what it meant to love. The most famous one of all, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's from the pen of John. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He says, like, don't pretend to know God and then don't, and not, and not do what he says. Luke 6.46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? If you claim to love God, he will keep his commands. Not perfectly. The trajectory is more important than the destination often, but you will be increasingly doing that. You know, the world will tell you, love looks a certain way. Friendships even, relationships, Intimacy, they'll say it looks a certain way. Jesus comes in and says, John 15, verse 13, no one has greater love than this, than he who would lay down his life for his friends. Love isn't just one way. It is sacrificial. So if you don't have sacrifice in your love, guess what? It's not a, a mystical idea. If you don't have sacrifice in your love, you aren't loving. Period. The greatest love is that you'd give your life for someone. 1 John 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Period. 
God is love. In uh, First John, uh, no, not in First John. Yeah, First John, First John three, he talks about the fact that if anybody has this world's goods, material possessions, and sees his brother in need and has no compassion on his need, how can the love of God be in him? How can it be? If you see someone in need and don't even have compassion, if you if you won't even open your window and give somebody a loony. How can the love of God be in you? First John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. Fear is a very real thing. Be instead, perfect love drives out fear. And I love this one. Because fear involves punishment, so the one who fears punishment has not yet reached perfection in love. And then the just tops it all off. We love because he first loved us. John wrote so much about love. He brought love from this sort of this romantic, ethereal place and said, here is the concreteness of what it means to love people and love God. It is not complicated, but it is not easy. For John the Elder, to know God was to know truth. It was the Logos. It meant that we would know him with such intimacy that we would trust him to expose any sin or pride in our lives and hearts with his light. And it meant that it didn't mean a thing if we didn't love people. We needed love and truth and action. Isn't he just great that way? You know, John was like this. He would write with like this affectionate persuasion. He's hard. He gets in your face, but he has an affectionate persuasion. Consider the better way. Think about this. Have you thought about? He does that over and over and over again. Which one of these applies to your life? I have three questions for you. I'm not going to put them up. And you know why not? Because you don't need to do all three. You probably just need to do one. And when you hear the question, you're going to remember it. Because that's just how it works. The first question is this. Is there a question that's keeping you from truly knowing God? Is there a question? Maybe you're on the precipice of Christianity, can't quite cross the, the, the threshold. Is there a question that is keeping you from crossing the threshold? Or maybe you're a Christian and there is, there is thorns in your path and it's stopping you from moving forward. What is that question? Because God has an answer. What are you going to do this week to get yourself into a place of truth where you can discover it? Or, number two, is there a dark place in your life that you've not allowed God to expose to the light? How will you allow him to this week? How will you allow him to? The sun is very bright and hurts our eyes when we come out of a dark place, but pretty soon we realize what a blessing it is. How will you allow God to illuminate dark places in your heart this week? Maybe memorize scripture or talk to somebody. It could be any of those. And number three, is there a disconnect between the love that you claim to have for God in here and its application to people out there? Is there a disconnect? Is there a greediness in your life, which is idolatry? Are you willing to be generous this week to kind of undo some of those those things that have been tied up that are keeping you from truly experiencing the love of God. One of those three questions will give you homework for this week, I promise. 
Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you don't leave us wondering what truth is, but that you expose it for us. I'm so grateful that you don't let us languish in our sin, but you show us what it is and how to get out. And I'm so grateful, God, that love, loving an invisible God is hard. There's no warm arms to wrap ourselves in. So I'm grateful, God, that you explain to us the practicality of your love on earth. And it is so true that as I love the least of these, that I'm loving you, and I know that in my heart and my spirit. So this week, God, I pray that you would meet us in these questions. I pray, God, that we would not forget that by your spirit you would remind us that we have work to do. And Jesus, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would unlock some of that in our hearts. Some of the thoughts that are in our head, I pray now that they would move to our hearts. I ask that you would do that in this last song. Amen.